go welcome to the no life jackets podcast this is episode six with tim who apparently is our regular guest on this uh on this particular podcast so welcome welcome back tim um at this point i'll have some links down in the description for what we're doing but just to give a quick intro to uh to what we're rolling with here we are reading uh the year of the frog uh it's uh, by a slovak author so we both read it we're just going to kind of go over it i'll try to put a link in the description for the books and um other contact info like that. And uh, as always, we have uh, an email set up at brian at nolifejackets.com if you'd like to, um, you know, contact us at any point. So, yeah. But, uh, Tim, thanks for coming on back. And uh, you've got a little bit of uh, context around this book to share. Definitely. Uh, thanks for having me again, Brian. And uh, it's, it's good to be back. It's good to be talking to you. And I like this new format. Uh, I like to read books as uh you as as you do as well so uh i think this is going to be a lot of fun into the future so uh without further ado uh let's talk about this awesome book so the book is called the year of the frog by the author martin milan Shimichka. and this author is a particularly interesting person because he grew up as a child of uh, of dissidents in uh, communist Czechoslovakia. Uh, those dissidents, his parents were Czech, but they lived in Bratislava. So uh, this author, he thinks of himself as a true Czechoslovak, really, you know, or uh, he, he thinks of himself as uh, being, uh, you know, d both in the Czech cultural context and in the Slovak cultural context as well. So he's, he's home in both worlds, let's say. Um, so, this book actually was written in uh, basically anywhere from 1980 to 1983. Uh, it's basically, it looks like um, he was writing these uh, little notes, uh, as sort of like streams of consciousness and, and uh, he then assembled it and he uh, released it in what was called a Samizdat, which was a, a piece of literature that came out uh, during the communist times, which couldn't be published officially because it was either criticizing the regime or the author was in some way, um, you know, in some way wasn't uh, uh, conform what conforming to the communist regime and therefore he couldn't publish. Um, and yeah, so so it came out like this in in an underground newspaper. And uh, after the uh, fall of communism, uh, it was published in English, assembled together, and uh, it received uh, a prize in the U.S. It was, I think the prize is called uh, Los Angeles News or Los Angeles Times uh, Prize, which is like a New York Times Prize, but on the West Coast, I think. It, it's, it was supposed mm -hmm. to be uh, pretty prestigious back in the day. So, but yeah, like, um, so, so that's a little bit about the author and how this book came out. But I think to give a, a little bit of a, a historical comprehensive lesson here, I think we have to start um, in the 60s to really understand what this book is about. So, so the 60s were uh, very different in the West uh, and in the East. In the West, you've had uh, you know hippies, you've had um, you know, the Vietnam War, you've had you know psychedelics and, um, and uh, John Lennon and, and all of that, while in the East, it was also um, like a, 
like an age of liberalization, uh, socialism or communism, I will be using these two terms interchangeably, socialism or communism was uh, considered uh, already built. Uh, so, you know, Czechoslovakia, Poland and other countries uh, in the Eastern Bloc were um, experiencing sort of like a political, uh, political um, liberalization, let's say. Mm -hmm. So that was something that was in common with the West. You know, it was this, uh, it was this age of age of you know real liberalization, and it um, it really peaked in 1968 in Czechoslovakia because um, the the current communist uh, or the then current communist uh, leadership. Um, wanted some uh, some liberalization uh, in terms of uh, the, the political system as well. Um, so the idea was we're going to keep the communist regime in place. However, we want to uh, give uh, more freedom to, uh, to travel for people, more freedom for the press to write what they want instead of just uh, propaganda, publishing propaganda essentially. <laughs> and um, this, this was met with a lot of, uh, lot of disdain from the Soviet Union. And, uh, and shortly, shortly after these events of 1968, which are called the Prague Spring, uh, we've experienced uh, a backlash, uh, a political backlash, which was then called normalization, because it was mm. supposed to return Czechoslovakia to the normal, true communism again, uh, no liberalization for you, Czechoslovakia. So uh, the period of normalization lasted from the 70s, basically until the end of, uh, of communism, until the fall of communism. For gotcha. 20, Interesting. 20 gotcha. I, I actually hadn't picked up on that, that this was kind of, um, there had been a period where there was more liberalization back in 68, and this was kind of a backlash to that. Interesting. So it's almost, it would seem like, hmm. so would you say that the backlash was like a lot, like when, when I usually think of a lot of, socialism and communism in the eastern in eastern europe back mm -hmm. in the day it's a very top-down hierarchical kind of kind of setup so was it kind it was kind of a, was it a situation where maybe like the individual countries and uh that were not necessarily uh like right they're they're not the ussr but they're very much related to them um were kind of leaning in more of a liberal direction and then it kind of came down from the ussr um was that sort of top-down sort of backlash, or do you think it was like kind of cultural from the bottom? It was definitely top-down because what happened was uh, in the 60s or by the end of 60s, uh, there was a, like a real, um, there was like a real mood for a change in, in Czechoslovakia society. And um, however, uh, so, so, so the changes, the nature of the changes was supposed to be such that the leading role of the Communist Party would uh, be kept intact. However, uh, what was to change was, um, again, no censorship for the press and all of that. However, uh, the Soviet Union leadership with uh, uh, Leonid Brezhnev uh, back then uh, didn't like that because uh, they thought if Czechoslovakia undergoes these uh, uh, these this, this liberalization of politics, uh, they will actually, the communism there will actually collapse. Um, and they were afraid, you know, Czechoslovakia would, would then join the West. It was uh, the first country to uh, to be doing so if, if that were to happen. So 
Gotcha. But so yeah, a, bit of, expl- a bit of like a domino effect. Because we talk, we talk, it's interesting yeah, because when, I, yeah. when we talk about history here from the U.S. side, that's talked about the exact, the exact same wave during like, say, Korea and Vietnam. The idea was, hey, we need to go in here and mm-hmm. stop communism or else it'll spread across the world like a plague. Like, um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting how that's almost, it, it's very, it's a very similar view of things from completely opposite political directions. <laughs> right. But just, yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a good observation, actually. Uh, but one more thing. Uh, one more thing. So, so the countries in the Eastern Europe, uh, or what we now call the Eastern Europe, we don't like to be called Eastern Europe. We're Central Europe. Uh, oh, gotcha. <laughs> um, but, but uh, yeah, uh, but that's just a linguistic uh, toy to differentiate us from our communist past. I think. Gotcha. Anyways, um, so so the countries in the Eastern Europe, uh, Poland, uh, Czechoslovakia, now Czech Republic and Slovakia, Hungary, for example, uh, were part of the Soviet bloc. So we weren't part of the Soviet Union, uh, but we were part of the Soviet bloc, which was basically, uh, it was an ideological alignment with the Soviet Union. And uh, it was much more top-down than, uh, let's say, the ideological alignment of, I don't know, Germany or France with the United States, let's say. Um, much much less top-down. Like, you know, if, if France wanted to undergo some form of, uh, I don't know, some form of, uh, you know, a, a political uh, reform, it was it, it was unlikely that the U.S. would just come and you know smash France, yeah, <laughs> and yeah, you know, and smash that reform with that. Unless it was a communist reform, I don't know what would happen then. Yeah, the sixties. Who knows? <laughs> I suppose you never you never know in the sixties. Oh, yeah. But yeah, yeah, maybe maybe. Yeah, yeah I mean, I doubt yes. it. Like, there's still a very there it there's still a very strong I'd say like isolationist bend to a lot of the United States. Um, mm-hmm. As much as a lot yeah. of people in power can be pretty hawkish on wanting to send troops and assistance everywhere all the time mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. there's a it's kind of it's really baked in to a lot of different cultures in the u.s it's just like hey we're uh, we're over here it's all good we have the biggest oceans in the world separating us from almost everybody who would possibly try to hurt us we're good <laughs> but uh yeah but yeah yeah, yeah. um th- this nice. is part of the part of the criticism that also undergoes uh you know or is uh, pointed towards the United States when people say that, oh, you actually, the United States doesn't get the existential, th- um, you know, the existential dread that other countries get from their neighbors because the U.S. has very peaceful neighbors. Uh, so, mm-hmm. and, uh, anyways, uh, but one more thing I want to say about the, the age of this book. Uh, so mm-hmm. it was the 80s, uh, right? The U.S. was, um, uh, <laughs> I think Ronald Reagan was president. You know, uh, it was the Coke era in the states, and uh, oh yeah, it was uh, <laughs> republicanism was was in its high tide. Um, but over here in uh, in Europe or in the Eastern Bloc, uh, it was it was very much thought that communism would be here for a long time. It was a running joke uh, here, and uh, people said. Uh, so how long is going to, uh, how long do you expect communism to last? And people said, oh, communism is not going to last. The only question is whether that, whether it will end in 200 or 400 years. <laughs> so, um, so, so that, that was the sort of scale um, mm-hmm. uh, people thought of when, uh, when they, you know, even began to think about the end of communism. And lo and behold, uh, less than 10 years after uh, this book was written, uh, communism collapsed, and people 
just didn't think that would happen in their lifetimes. Now, my mom once told me that if she, because she grew up in the 80s, obviously, mm -hmm. she, she once told me that um, if someone told me, if someone told her that I would be studying in the, in the United States for a period of one year during high school, um, she wouldn't just believe it. It was simply unthinkable, unfathomable uh, for them. Um, it was like going to Mars, she told me. So, so this is this is the sort of age this has been written in. Um, Interesting. Yeah. yeah, and just um, to look it up to uh, add a, a, a slight bit of, bit of context here, just around the publishing of this. So yeah. it's like um, I'm trying to I'm trying to I was trying to think of some sort of equivalent uh, in in kind of a U.S. context for this, and there's mm -hmm. not much of one, but the close would be like. So, sort of very much self-publishing, right? The print, print printing mm -hmm. access and all of this back then um, in Czechoslovakia was very much restricted, right? If you to get access to do any sort of large-scale printing, you had had to have specific access and like registration for your printer, right? It's that that's kind of the area in which this was written. So a lot of this it was it could be handwritten, typed up at home on a on a typewriter. Someone had it, and it was literally just passed around from person to person, right? You'd get these sheets of paper, you'd read them, and you pass them around. So it was. It was very underground with how these were first done. And um, <coughs> I say that to give a little bit of context to the first point I wanted to bring up here. And Tim, you and I talked about this a little bit um, mm -hmm. previously. But I was surprised by how, for something that was written in a very underground context during a, during a very, a very heavy top-down cultural censorship sort of time, um, mm -hmm. That it's not necessarily the book itself isn't very like blatantly critical of um, of the government per se, right? It kind of has vague things about the state, and the book itself is very cynical, right? And so you could you could say that that's definitely like I would say probably the most um, kind of visceral critique that it has is just kind of the overall tone and how you can see how growing up in uh, in his situation led him to be so cynical, especially since it's such an intra in uh like an introspective book um mm -hmm. where he's just constantly talking about uh his own thoughts so i just thought it was it was super interesting that this isn't just a blatant you know anti anti-state propaganda book but was kind of just that, that's kind of like a tertiary plot point but um not a ton yeah <laughs> definitely this is something that um that's, that's very much present in the book and perhaps kind of surprisingly but um, I think that we have to consider that uh, the author was like 23 or 25 when he wrote this. So even the regime was uh, touching him only only marginally back then mm -hmm. that one. I mean, it, 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 the, the biggest um, the biggest thing that was present in, in his life when uh, or the biggest um, what what the biggest element of presence of communism in his life was the fact that he was denied his studies. So if you were, he would, since he was a son of a dissident, he couldn't study. Um, if you were in some way, uh, you know, uncomfortable for the regime, there was no way you were getting to a good high school, you know, let alone university. Um, so, so he was kind of bitter about that. And because the, he, he thought that the regime took this away from him. He thought that uh, he was denied this just because his father was, a dissident so so it was like a so so in turn what he did was he escaped this prison of a regime into its own internal world that's what happened that's, that's how i see it i think that's 
Um, that's why he writes so much about his own thoughts and his own internal, mm. it's his internal dialogue that goes on in the book. So, so to eliminate the external, he went internal. Interesting. Gotcha. That, that, that makes a whole, that makes a whole lot of sense to me. Like just, you know, as someone who's, who's like, um, you know, like at, at points I've, I, I've gone through some through through depression and things like this. And when I was reading this book, it was kind of bringing me back to a lot of that. Like mm-hmm. when you're in a deep depression, like just the heavy cynicism, and you view like everything and everybody else's actions as some sort of game almost that's out of your control. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it like all sorts of um, authenticity in like like if someone tells you something you think in your head like, ah, this is why they're saying that, right? They barely have any control over this. This is why they're saying that. So I def I definitely get a lot of, get uh get a lot of those same elements out of it. And I think I, I think it's it's really, really powerful when he writes about it. I did um probably just add a little bit a little bit of context um mm-hmm. for the book once once again. So you you mentioned his his dad was uh was a political dissident. So um so his dad's been carted off to prison somewhere. He he grows up yes. and he can't compete in sports like he wants to he can't go to university like he wants to and that's kind of the context where all of this book takes place and the book's actually i probably should mention this earlier but it is uh autobiographical so it's it's very much based off of the author's life um martin martin simica or uh you can probably pronounce it better but <laughs> but yeah i uh, uh, gotcha yeah so his um so this is all based off of his life and like reading re- reading through it um like it's it kind of blows your mind a little bit like how mm-hmm. how varied his experiences are and how almost like obviously he's telling the narrative so there might be a little bias here but almost every experience that he has just feeds into this cynicism and kind of kind of the depressive state of the book even more like mm-hmm. um like he goes and he gets a job as a surgical orderly. So his his job is sitting there oh, yeah. while people cut people open. And there's descriptions in this book, and I'm like, he clearly had to have had to actually have this job. So I looked it up to make sure. But yeah, he he actually had this job because he's describing these medical procedures very matter of factly. Like, hey, this is how it works. Right. And the imagery that he can get, he can get across from doing things like this, and just how, how it kind of translates to his own state of mind and kind of. Um, as an allegory for the culture at the time overall it's super powerful but like you know working there even working at the hardware store and his experiences there that were kind of feeding into this cynicism like almost every part of his life is going in this in this general direction aside from his relationship with uh with tanya Yeah, uh, like it's, it's the, the part of where he worked in these in this surgical uh, ward or whatever it was that was that was a harsh one. I think what 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 struck me about this part was uh, how how cold everything was, how cold everything seemed. The hospital the hospital should be a hospitable place. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's right. It's right in the name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, 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 this seemed just like a very cold, harsh place, you know, very matter-of-factly. These people were just dying there. And this, he had a, a good friend there. Um, this, uh, this it, she wasn't a doctor, but she was like, a, she was a nurse, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, she, she had this friend there who he fell sort of platonically in love with. Um, but in this, this woman, um, 
he described her as, as, as almost a man, you know, huge hands and mm-hmm. strong, powerful body. And, you know, she could, um, yeah, it was, it was very cold. Like she, even when he, she told him that someone died in the ward uh, during the night, um, it was very cold, I think. Um, and and uh, mm-hmm. this is, this is one of the, I don't know, like it, it struck me as, as if the human that lay there, had zero to none uh, value of, of like individual value was just meat on the table exactly it, it struck me like that yeah. it's yeah it's it's super interesting it's almost like like i think like one, one of the like the most powerful thing in, in this book is just how introspective it is so you can see his mind and you can and you're also getting these hints of how either his experience or like the culture and, and things and activities around him have kind of shaped this mindset and so then you kind of take how he's experiencing this and you can kind of almost draw a straight line back to how like this is sort of representative of the overall culture maybe this this is a response to it Mm -hmm. like just the the idea that necessarily one in one in one individual doesn't necessarily matter right when you zoom when you zoom out and you're looking at this from a very communitarian point of view where you know everything's for the for the good of society and the community at large um this is this is kind of where stuff like this can lead right and like i've worked in i I worked at a nursing home for a little while and stuff like that and i can see how you know working in a situation like that particularly in a world where people are dying every day it -hmm. could definitely desensitize you to it a little bit but Mm -hmm. i just i just think it's really interesting like the lines that you can always draw back from his point of view and how he's experiencing this to like Hey, maybe this is a problem with how we're looking at things like this in society right now. So it's it's a very like how do I describe this? It's a very like it's not vague. It's it's a very subtle way to make a very powerful statement. Like it's not coming out and banging you over the head with anything like this, but it's very very subtle way. Um, it's like in the movies when they try to show you through image. They, they try to show you an idea through image. This is similar, I think. You have to read between the lines to really understand what he was saying. And he really was criticizing the regime in a sense with this because it's it's as if he was, as an individual, looking for a way to channel this individualism, I think, in an, in a collectivist society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that's, like that. You know? That's that's an excellent point. Yeah, because you can kind of, right? When you, mm, that's that's really interesting. So, it's like if you're looking, if you're a relatively, like I, I'd say you can probably link it to some sort of personality type thing, right? So if you're say a very mm-hmm. creative, expressive person, then you're probably, um, and you're in a collectivist society. I feel like you'll be pretty pulled. Um, you'll be pretty pulled towards. That's a good way of saying this you'll be pretty pulled towards some sort of individualism, right? But when you're not allowed to express that in your society necessarily, yep. right? At least in a way that you that you normally would, um, you could definitely get pulled just straight into your own mind. That's that's a very interesting point. I think that I think that's 100% correct. Um, mm-hmm. That kind of being pulled into your own mind and saying, hey, this is how, this is the only way I could express myself, you know, writing stuff down on these, on these sort of underground publishings. That's that's really interesting. That's a good point. Yeah, and, and he even said this in the book. He said that 
or maybe it was another book I read by by him, but uh, he said that I, you know, I just want to write. I just want to write and uh, and publish. That's that's all I want. Even I, if I have to live in destitute, uh, that's all I want to do. And by the way, uh, after the end of communism, this author, uh, he became like a, a huge public intellectual in Slovakia, and he knows all these uh, American authors. He knows Timothy Snyder. He knows uh, he knows uh, Timothy Gartnash, who's British. Uh, he knows uh, Tony Judd, who died. Great public intellectual, great intellectual historian. Um, yeah, so so he knows the all these great minds because um, after the collapse of of the of the Berlin Wall and after the collapse of communism, uh, there was this sudden uh, strike of uh, interest uh, of the East of the Eastern uh, element in in Europe and uh, yeah so so that's how he actually could publish and could become uh, what he wanted all along, but he had no idea this would one day be the case you know. Um, if you lived at so living as a dissident in, in, in communist time was was no joke. You could be jailed. You could be uh, you basically couldn't work uh, good jobs. Um, you had to stick to uh, like the, the low uh, part of the economy. Um, yeah, so it was it was it was no joke, and many that's why just uh, just a few people did it. Actually, that's that's why many people were. Um, fine with with it um, because they wanted to just live their life and if you if you if you wanted to live your life and all you had to do was agree with the regime well then fuck it you know you you're gonna agree with the regime um, mm -hmm. but so so this was this was like a real being a dissident uh, back then was a real expression of of um, of uh, courage I'd say. Yeah, I, I like that idea a lot, and I think it's it kind of leads into how like this is it's a very I'd say it's probably a very honest portrayal of what of what it's like to live in something like this, right? Because like say like a lot of books that are sort of on the on this topic, right, along the idea of like living in an authoritarian society, right? The idea is that always oh, there's a, an authoritarian society that exists here. Clearly, the, this movie or book has to be about overturning it completely and how horrific it is, right? Or something like 1984, where it's very it's very blatant and over the top how um, how this power is exercised from the top down and how horrific it is. And that's not necessarily the case mm -hmm. in this book, and it's probably not the case in real life, right? Because people are still going to have to actually live in this society, and even having some ideas against it isn't necessarily going to be like the worst thing in the world right it's not necessarily that you're living as a as a secondary citizen who's constantly being spit on in the streets or something like that um but i think i i think it's just very honest to say hey here's how it is and he keeps drawing those lines between like i think um his mental state back and that's just it's such a it, it's a it's a very honest way to talk about actually living in something like this instead of going over the top and you know, mm -hmm. kind of exaggerating and doing things like that. So um, I definitely appreciated that around as well. Let me quick, I think I'm going to pause the recording here because I just realized that um, I need to fix my Zoom license or get one or something or else we're going to run out of meeting time here. So uh, let me pause this quick. <laughs> and we're back. Having successfully fixed all of our technical issues as the IT professional that I am. Didn't take any time at all, I assure you. Um, all right, so um, back to our points. Let me pull another point off my list that I have here so we can kind of kind of jump back in here. Um, I wanted to talk about 
So I'm, I'm curious, did you read this in, did you read the, read the English translation or did you read in the original Slovak? I've read it in the original. <laughs> I, I couldn't get my hands on an English translation here. Gotcha. But, you know, sounds sounds yeah. good. And am, I, am I right that it's written in Slovak? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, gotcha. So I... Except for the, except for the part with uh, where the American is, Sam. Oh, yeah. No, that's it's partly in English. So interesting. That, that's cool. I like it when I like it when there's yeah. little touches like that. Um, yeah. So I loved like like just the prose, like the way it was written, like the stream of conscience. He's obviously a very talented writer. Like obviously he wrote it when he when he was really young. Uh, and mm -hmm. so maybe some of the like total structure overall for the story, you know, probably like you know, it, it, it's a different type of story. But the like just because he's in this place of heavy, heavy introspection, you really need a lot of, you, you kind of need to have a very artful prose style of writing to really keep people drawn in since he's doing just like most of these just thoughts off his head. And a lot of these, a lot of like the analogies he makes and um, just the way he writes a lot of this stuff was really, really, really well written. And I'm, I'm curious if the, uh, if you thought that was the case in the original translation as well, or if he just had a really good translator. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true for the Slovak one as well. I think uh, it's, it's very interesting to see how he, how he thinks about uh, the world through his words. Right. Um, it's because these, the, this language that he's, that he's using, um, it's just, uh, it's just about the best, um, window to his soul that you can get right um, mm -hmm. yeah the, the things the things he notices in the world the things that he speaks on when he so for example when he's running he goes into incredible detail mm -hmm. about you know every sort of thing that you experience when you're a uh, when you're a runner and you really want to squeeze your uh, squeeze every last drop yeah of it's, in your it's, body it's very like like it, it's it's such great writing in that, um, like a rule for writing a lot, um, since I, I, cause I write sh some short stories as well. And the rule mm -hmm. that you always want to follow generally is show, don't tell. Right. So you don't right. like, you don't want to tell someone, Hey, this guy really likes running right now. If, but like, he's like multiple times in this book, he's describing himself running and he's just going for it. And he's making analogies about different parts of his bodies. And it's like, it's it's relating through the environment he's going through and it's all just really really descriptively well written and i like i never felt like a hint of him like realizing he needed to get a point across to you and just telling you that right it's always it's always right. these descriptions it's always stuff like that and i i think like I, I think that's probably the biggest like writing takeaway that i took from this book is just like mm -hmm. Tons of examples of how you can do that. Show, don't tell. It's it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, you're dead on the money there. I think uh, he really, he really is a master of because descriptions can be boring sometimes. You know, you're describing environment or you know whatever. It can be boring, but he, what he manages to do, I think, is he manages to slip these ideas into that description, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the description is no longer just a description. It's a it carries ideas as well. So, so when he's running, he's describing how he's getting, you know, sick from his stomach and you know everything is burning and all of that. But then he he has like an like an like a uh, like a great idea 
pops into his head and he manages to uh, get that into that description of his run. Like by the end of uh, one of those uh, chapters, he's realizing he's 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 realizing that he's um, really in love with Tanya and uh, he probably couldn't live his life without her. And I, I think that's like a point of no return. And it really is shown in that visceral image of him running through that uh, forest and and just you know squeezing every last drop of of, of himself in in that run and and having this this um what hmm, how do you describe it this um great uh, eureka moment yeah, discovery uh, epiphany yeah. that's 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 epiphany the, yeah. that's the word i was looking for yeah <laughs> epitaph no not epitaph epiphany <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah. awesome all right. Well, you got a, you got a specific point you'd like uh, you'd like to jump to next. Sure, right. sure. Um, yeah, I've, I've written some points down as well. And what really struck me about this book is it was despite the harshness of that regime, despite the harshness of the life and the the things that he had to endure um, as a result of of uh, being on the other side of of uh, <laughs> what communism wanted he manages to paint a picture of a simple life of uh, of th th this book is like it, it's really light in its in its thread i think you know it's it's threading lightly very it's very like thin um it, in parts it's of course it's cynical in, in its parts but i think at the same time when he's describing you know the long summer nights and mm. what they did over over summer um and all of that it was uh, it was this incredible stillness of life that he manages to describe, and it's in real contrast to what we experience as young adults right now. I think because yeah. we are surrounded by this incredible amount of stimulation everywhere. You know, your Instagram, your Facebook, uh, whatnot. Um, the, the the speed of life is really something else today. I think. And um, I, I think that there's a real contrast contrast with what life was back then. I don't know if this is uh, true for uh, life in the 80s in the U.S. as well or in the West, but it seems like life was simpler and um, more more stale back then. And you can really appreciate these little things um, that Definitely. you encounter every day. Yeah, I'd I'd say I'd say it's not necessarily that. Like, I don't think it's necessarily true that, like, life is different. But I think with all, with all these stimuli that you're talking about with social media and if you want to hear something, there's someone who's going who's gonna to agree with you, mm -hmm. someone who's going to disagree with you, probably 50 of each out there, um, varying levels of success. And you can just al always bombard yourself, right? I'll be like, like, it's, it's so heavy that I'll, like, I'll be like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom and I'll like pick up my phone and start looking for a YouTube video to watch while I take a shit. Right. It's like, yeah. why, <laughs> why, what's wrong with me? Like there's like, there's so much stimulation yeah. that it, it convinces you it's tricking you into thinking that all of these things are important when none of these things actually yeah. matter. Right. Like yeah. in that moment, it's so important that I, that I, I'm constantly stimulating myself or trying to educate myself or learning. Yeah, and it's tricky because sometimes there are good there like there are good things, right? You're you're learning more, you're educating yourself, but it tricks you into thinking that all of this really actually matters. And I think 
um, I think to a certain point, what he what he was kind of doing in the book, like he's talking about these these heavy, dark, cynical subjects a lot. But like you say, he almost talks about them in a light way. And maybe the cynicism sort of lends to that in that it's like he's talking about all these things. And in the end, maybe, you know, it's not necessarily all of this heavy, dark cynicism that matters. He's telling you what happened throughout the day. And that's kind of ends up ends up being what matters. Right. He went for a run. He went to the beach. He had a great a great time camping, stuff like that. And. I think, yeah, I think I think you're probably right that back in the in the 80s, it definitely was simpler just because you didn't have as much access, and so maybe it was easier to see that none of this really matters. Do you need to be caught up on all the breaking news constantly glued to your screen? Probably not. Um, but I think we've just been tricked into thinking that life is so different because of all of this. You have such a hard time saying, listen, this really isn't that important to me because it's like, oh, but don't you care? <laughs> like. <laughs> there's it's it's really heavy but yeah and it's 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 harder to unplug from all this i think you know because mm -hmm. it it seems like the the age we live in demands it right i don't know if this is a false notion but it really seems like it, it the age demands it you know you have to be up to speed with uh you know all the all the all the things all the matters of the world basically right uh, and it can be heavy and like the first advice you get from uh, psychologists, I think today is like unplug for a while, you know, like you don't have to, mm -hmm. uh, you don't have to bury yourself in all this content. Ironically, we are adding to it right now. But right yeah. now, yeah. <laughs> for all those people listening to this on the toilet, just keep on listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so there was something, also something that surprised me was how easy it was to get a job <laughs> right <laughs> i was i was reading that and it was like like the cops come up and they're like hey man you don't have a job and he's like yeah i suppose i should get a job and he just goes yeah. and goes and gets a job i suppose maybe it was there like do you know if there at all was like some sort of like government thing really it, it sounded yeah, very it was related to the government like it, there was no private transaction it was sorta? okay gotcha so let, watch this so uh so it was actually illegal to be not working, to not be working during communism. It was illegal. You had to be working. You had to be contributing to the system. There was no way around it. Uh, you, you, could, you could be without work for two months. That's what he did during that one period of uh, the book. You know, he, mm -hmm. he abandoned uh, his previous job for two months and, and then he had to find a new one. He, otherwise, you would be arrested and thrown into jail. <laughs> so, <laughs> You had to be working, yeah. And you know what this resulted into? Like, so, so, so the positive thing about this was everybody had a job. So, so yeah. there was there was this sense of security. You're always going to have a job. The bad side of this is that over a point over employment was a real thing. Mm -hmm. You know, people were employed just for the sake of them being employed. Um, and you know that ruins your economy. Uh, yeah. So essentially, so. Because you have to have that, unfortunately, you have to have a certain amount of pressure um, for, for existential pressure for you to move ahead and, and all of that. Because if you always have a job and you, you're guaranteed to have one because you have to have one, therefore you're guaranteed to have one, you don't really seek to better yourself in that job mm -hmm. or you don't really seek to do your best, let's say, or... You know, so so you, you sort of went into that job and you did your bare minimum. You collected your wage by the end of the month. And you mm -hmm. lived your simple life. 
Yeah. Yep. That sort of system is is perhaps easy, more. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. Is 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 that system easier on the soul or not? Because you can make an argument that it actually isn't, because people are burdened animals. We need burden to um, to move ahead. Mm -hmm. We need to bear responsibility and all of that. Um, so so it actually. But yeah, but you could also make an argument that you know you're sort of living your simple life and you're contributing to the overall state and you know your the the outcomes the products of your work get redistributed and you're just Def living definitely. your simple life. Yeah, I, I see. I see what you mean. Like there's a, there's a saying that I can't remember where I heard it exactly. It might have been years ago in like a in like a Jordan Peterson video or something like that. But like. You know, in the U.S. at least in particular, and probably mm -hmm. I assume it applies to like Canada and places like that as well. But we're very—it's it's very much a culture of a career, right? Everybody wants a career, right? You need to—you're going to have a job that you're working towards, and you're going to be work, working up the ladder and doing your best and stuff like that. And that's that's kind of what a career is. But most people don't have careers, right? They have jobs, right? And that's kind of that's mm -hmm. kind of kind of what you're what you're mentioning here. A lot of people they had you know jobs. You go in, you do stuff, you come out, and that's not necessarily. A point of fulfillment for you or anything like that it's just a way for you to get sustenance and stuff like that um but i think because there are some people that will work really well for and some people that it won't and i feel like like a system like that i think the biggest thing is just going to be overall productivity right i don't think you're going to have a very mm -hmm. productive workforce if everybody has a job right because you're kind of demotivating yep. some people who maybe would be motivated to work harder um and productivity, and I'm, I'm, I suppose I could, there's probably actually statistics for this out there because economists are super nerds who probably recorded all of this <laughs> stuff in the 80s. But I, I, I would almost be certain that productivity would drop massively, and um, it, it's kind yeah. of a, a thing of the, of the of like the the Soviet system in the time, but maybe a little more, a little earlier than that is what I'm thinking particularly. But right, like, hey, this this town, their job is a factory. If they're not producing enough, we need them to produce twice as much. We're going to give them twice as much resources, right? <laughs> we're just we're just yeah. going to take the inputs, jack them up, and go through it. The process itself is probably completely unchangeable. It's just a factor of what we put in, what out. It's an equal sign. It's an equation. Um, we just need to put more inputs in, and uh, it's kind of interesting. So I'm sure productivity yep. is probably the big difference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And you know, if if the job market isn't governed at least a little bit by uh, by the by the free hand. Um, you end up with an unproductive economy. That's what you're. That's what you're mentioning exactly. So, and that's why the. That's why a lot of um, industry that was here in in Czechoslovakia, like so Slovakia and Czech Republic, were very in, heavily industrialized. And after the collapse of uh, of, of communism here, a lot of those um, a lot of those fact factories went bust <laughs> because they couldn't compete with uh, with the Western uh, standard, let's say, of productivity and all of that. So a lot of a lot of them went bust. It's not the only reason why, but um, it largely contributed to the fact. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, like once, you know, you, you, ha you had these two different economic systems competing against each other while the other outcompeted uh, uh, the next one. Mm -hmm. And uh, once they became uh, once they joined each other on common ground, the the the, the, the communist one just couldn't compete. And um, it was it was a disaster. Yeah. Like nineties were a disaster. Uh, a part of part of the reason why nineties were such a disaster in the Soviet Union or in Russia, for example, was this. So, 
Gotcha. Yeah, it's a it, it's a it's almost a bit of an argument for globalization and kind of against a lot of isolationist stuff. And this is like the the example that that I heard most growing up growing up for this exact phenomenon was uh was Cuba, right? So Cuba was mm-hmm. like embargoed from U.S. trade and a lot of this stuff for like seventy years or something like that. And so I think finally in maybe it was the eighties after stuff fell. We kind of op- opened up a bit with with Cuba for a, for a bit, and like people were going down there and visiting, and it was like absolute insanity to some people. They like come back and we're like in the eighties now, right? Cars look like jet fighters; they're all very stylized, and technology is huge. And then they fly down to Cuba and they'd see like what was the cars name? I think Trabant. There's a, lot, there's a lot of these cars. They're, they're just the worst cars ever made. And they're using them constantly all over the place. And it was it was kind of a bit of a big wake-up call. Because um, I think probably 90s and 2000s, generally, that period is where the is where really really uh, the U.S. in particular opened itself up to a lot of globalization and stuff like that. And I think mm-hmm. uh, like the Cuba example was a big reason. <laughs> hmm Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's one thing. Like how easy... He, he, so, so what happened in the book was when Milan was approaching this two-month period of no, uh, of no job, of unemployment, he walked into a hardware store once and he told the clerk, I want a job. And the clerk sort of like measured him with his, uh, you know, with his eyesight and, and said, all right, well, you can start tomorrow. <laughs> And that was that. <laughs> I love, I love it. I love, it was, it was kind of blowing my mind. It was actually one of the one of the points I wrote down. I was like, "Is this literally just a just just a just a thing? Like you can just you could just do that? Like I, I mean, for a lot of service jobs like that, maybe you can do it pretty quick over here in the U.S. nowadays as well. But yeah. like just the just the idea that like you're entitled to a job is kind of like yeah. it, it's it's very foreign. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, and a lot of people actually miss that. Like when you talk to old people mm. in, in Slovakia or in Czech Republic, they, they miss that because they say, oh, you know, you've had security and, and you've, you, you, you know, um, it, the existential dread that's present in a free market uh, was gone. So I guess, mm-hmm. but yeah, it, it's ultimately, it isn't good for the, for the state as a whole. And therefore it isn't good for the people either because progress is stagnating and yeah yeah anyways gotcha all right let's see here i'll jump in one of my points here so what was it I, I thought was really interesting about this one was so th- this was originally published as like a bunch of short stories and things like that mm-hmm. and typically in short stories that i read and probably the ones i write as well um like the the point of view character can have like a very singular and logical thought pattern right because you because in, in a short story often depending on the length, some really short ones maybe don't have this, but the idea is that you're trying to either like a change in the character's point of view or a change in their situation in, in some sort of way, right? And so the story ends up being very focused in a specific area to say, hey, here's how the character was thinking, and they go through this change, and here you can see afterward how like their point of view has changed or situation has changed, things like that. And in this in these short stories, there wasn't a lot of that, right? Like, like if you just straight read through the story and you, you like, didn't care much for the mm-hmm. introspection, you'd probably think it was a pretty bad story, uh, right? Like, the plot points don't necessarily carry through. Like, maybe maybe even, like, the different sections don't have, um, 
they don't connect in a specific way. Even like in the self-contained section, there's not necessarily like a point of view change or something like that. It's written in a very messy way. And I thought that was very, it's written in a very honest way, right? right? Like you're getting all of, all of this guy's thoughts kind of as a normal human would have them, right? Instead of this sort of idealized narrative style that we read a lot where somebody mm -hmm. maybe is looking back and saying, hey, this is clearly the story. So I'm going to reframe what happened here to emphasize that's how this went. And it was, mm -hmm. just, it was just extremely honest. And I, uh, I, I was really surprised by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, we've discussed this a little bit before. Um, the way he writes, uh, we agreed it was sort of like a like a direct stream of consciousness style of writing, because uh, he just it, it seems as if he was just recording, and he was not only recording what was happening to him throughout the day or whatever, but he was also it. It seemed like. It seemed like he was like a filter through which he let those events run through and uh and he reflected them back onto the paper you know it, it wasn't just pure statement of facts it was it was it was it was it reflected through a point of view so so i imagine it as a you know as, as these things are happening through the external world is channeling something against you as an individuality and and you sort of let some of that through you and some of that is reflected and and you record that process and so, so I, I tend to think about his writing style as as this um yeah and it's perhaps uh, the reason why it's different maybe is that you know this was a guy who was just writing short stories for for samizdats for like these self-published underground uh, newspapers essentially uh, so he didn't really think of it as he didn't really I, I don't think he even thought that he would be able to publish it as a book yeah that's, one day, that's a good you know? that's, that's a good point like some of that honesty probably comes from not thinking that people are going to read it right so yeah, like, just like fuck it I, I just need to record this fuck it you know right <laughs> like, like he's completely writing it writing it for for, for himself basically maybe it maybe a few other people he's just going to throw it out in the world but yeah. it was never the idea like that he was going to write it like if i'm writing something and i know like a million people are going to read it right that's going to influence how honest i can kind of be about my own thoughts and mm -hmm. when i was mm -hmm. reading it, i'm like i don't know if i could be this honest if i was like writing it right. but, and part of that's probably because i'd be like well obviously this book's been read by a lot of people but like for instance some of his some of his like introspection when he's thinking about um like basically the concept of a woman right and how how women are different from him and how how he thinks about them and i'm like i would be scared shitless to try writing anything like this right <laughs> that was just that introspective right if i wrote down something like that and it was it ended up actually being read by people if someone's gonna like clip out that section be like look at this dumbass and then, and I and, and I run run the risk of getting you know ostracized from everywhere because I because I wrote some weird shit that I was thinking about one time, and yeah. I suppose maybe some of that's just kind of the culture we're li we're living in at, at the moment, right? The kind of kind of how things like that work. But I found that honesty just super refreshing, and it probably comes from not many people were probably going to read it, and maybe I suppose probably culturally things were a bit different back then, um, mm -hmm. but. Yeah. yeah, that's that's dead on the money, man. Like, yeah, I think that that's what makes this book really unique because you, you are undergoing a certain amount of self-censorship when you're writing 
some content that you expect other people to read. You know, you, you undergo this process of, you know, so, so one of these, one of the approaches that you can take when you're writing a, a short story or a book, you can sort of idealize yourself when you're, let's say, writing an autobiographical story. You, you can idealize yourself in your own thoughts, even, you know, even retrospectively, you're looking back and you can sort of, sort of consciously or subconsciously omit certain things. And, and that already is, is a sort of a censorship. Whereas here, it was just, uh, it was just recorded in a very, very honest way. Yeah. Without, yeah, it's, it's yeah. At some points I was definitely like, uh, like, like you, you were as well, like, um, catching myself thinking, wow, you know, I couldn't write this myself. If I was writing this and expecting people to read it, I, I couldn't be so honest, I think. And especially when he was describing women or, or Tanya, let's say, and the way he understood love and all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that was very honest, I think, you know. And I think it was really recording, the whole story was also recording the epiphanies a young adult has to go through when he's in his twenties or whatnot, you know, you have yeah. to go through these. Definitely. Definitely. I agree. I, I agree a hundred percent with that. Like it's a very developmental thing when you're like considering what yeah. you, what you think about something or, or how you're, how you're approaching this. And like, if you can figure out any like values underneath it, maybe that like, uh, that are important to you. And like, I feel like just by like, I don't, I don't think for a lot of this, it's very incentivized to kind of like, look at it and do it at least at least like like nowadays like i don't i don't think like you'd have to be absolutely insane to like mm -hmm. write something like this nowadays and just go through your own thoughts when you're a 17 year old dumbass right because you're you're gonna you're gonna write it maybe you publish it somewhere and some like 32 year old who's actually semi-educated is like yeah this is a very toxic way of looking at this thank you like you can't it's like yeah i mean he guy is 17 he's trying to figure this out maybe he, yeah. he didn't come up with a perfect one but it's i don't know it's it's a little bit scary that like because when you're that young and trying to figure this out you're not gonna have the right idea about things right like you're gonna be very wrong but i think you know just trying to understand yourself and how you're thinking about something is super important and not like uh and that just not being incentivized a lot right now i think is a huge problem <laughs> oh yeah yeah that's that's definitely the case um not not being able to because i don't like this um this this notion this uh, phrase but it's it's very much present in one way or another in our, in our culture right now and it's you know this phrase of, of cancel culture you know you, you yeah tends to be or you know there's these famous people who've written something stupid on twitter 10 years ago and there's this mob who finds that tweet who find that tweet tweet and um and mm -hmm. they, they cancel that person over that because they, they've said something stupid or homophobic or racist or whatnot you know i mean uh, you know so so it really doesn't incentivize like this free thought because that's what free thought is right you say something stupid and then maybe someone corrects you or you correct yourself and th there was this one case in the book where it was very um very much illustrative where he said, where, you know, the, the author, he sat down and he was like, all right, I'm going to write something. And he, he poses himself a question. He asks, what am I? 
and he's the first word, <laughs> the first phrase that uh, spurs to mind is "I'm a piece of shit," and he writes that down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then he's like, "Hmm, this is not a good start." It's it's really well, yeah, it's uh, like I I don't necessarily know what like like I just don't think like because. And I feel like everybody wants to have like, like, yeah, we get this is a problem, right? We need to figure out the ideal solution, right? It's got to be out there. And I just, I don't necessarily think that it is, right? And it's, yeah, like mm -hmm. being able to be this in this introspective, there's, you, you gain a lot by doing that instead of, um, like, I feel like the incentives right now would be to just, um, to not think about these things, to listen to somebody else who has in audience and uh someone who's in the who has an overton window of their own where all their ideas are here and there's enough people behind it where you can be like okay if i think this people won't think i'm crazy because a bunch of other people think yeah. it too and it's it's just it, it's just it's just dumb yeah <laughs> i mean it, it has its use right because mm -hmm. in in some sense the culture keeps you in check uh, yeah. with this you know you can't just think to yourself that it's i don't know that it's fine to you know shoot up a school or something like that exactly yeah like like for like for example if you're just sitting on your own in a cabin in the woods and you sit there <laughs> and you're like okay i'm going to figure out what i think about eugenics right <laughs> right yeah <laughs> and i know like i could i think if i sat down like in a cabin in the woods with no context for yeah. people to check me and i wrote down i could definitely like see myself coming to some conclusions and be like yeah, I mean, I get it, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, like and you can see, like, in the past, that was a thing, right? That was where the Overton window right. was, you know, sterilizing people with Down syndrome and yep. things like that. And, like, yeah. and if you're in a cabin in the woods not thinking about this and nobody checks you, you could come to yeah. a conclusion and maybe you maybe you'd internalize that and it would become, like, a part of your identity. And that would be a massive problem. Um, so there's definitely yeah, problems. That's what happened. <laughs> That's what happened to Hitler with Mein Kampf. You know, he wrote that book when he was in prison. So, you know, mm -hmm. they just, they, that was probably the worst thing, the, the best thing they could do for him, you know, close him up and uh, let him, you know, <laughs> let him dive into himself. <laughs> yeah, people are always like, man, if you can go back in time, would you kill baby Hitler? I'm like, no, I'd get that man into art school. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's, I'm going to rig the process so Hitler gets into art school, and now we're living in a utopia. All right? This is, this is the change we need to see in the world. Uh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. All right. You got another point you want to cover? <laughs> sure. So let's... Um, mm -hmm. Do -do -do. I've got a couple. Let's see. Um... Yeah, I found the, when I go back to the point of stillness for once, uh, I wrote down that it's the stillness that illustrates the enormity of individual existence. I think that, you know, it's, what, what I meant by this is, you know, you try to sit down and be with your own thoughts for a little bit. You know, you're probably going to get overwhelmed pretty fast. So, so stillness can be paradoxically it's not empty. Stillness is not empty. It's very much full of whatever comes up in your mind. And, and I think that the, the way that this book is at this book is at the same time, heavy and light is, is due to this fact that stillness being, you know, this lightness, this sort of ponderance is, is light while the 
enormity of your individual experience is heavy. So I think that's why this book is both light and heavy. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's sort of this paradoxical juxtaposition of of um, of meditation of or of meditative states. Let's say. Um, yeah. So that's 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 one of the points I've had written down. I think that's why it seems to both of us that this book is book is cynical and sarcastic and, and heavy, but at the same time, it's kind of light. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I definitely, I definitely agree. Like the, um, like it's an interesting way of, right? Because when you're living in a collectivist society and you're saying, and you'd be saying things that are particularly individualistic, but just kind of the idea that kind of your thoughts and your actions and maybe even just going about your daily life here is kind mm -hmm. of the focus of this book and your thoughts is itself kind of like an act of like protest against um, yeah. against what you're being in. Oh, yeah. It's it's a huge act of individualism to say, hey, I'm considering like maybe like maybe I'm do, I'm considering some philosophical stuff, but it's also very much in the moment, right? Like when he's watching these surgical procedures, like he's very mm -hmm. he's very in it, right? And he's focused on his experience of it and that itself is like a is kind of a huge expression of uh, the individual on its own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's in in some sense writing under a communist rule or under authoritarian rule. Let's say is the only possible escape if you live in a collectivist society because that's the only way you can really express your individuality, which is suppressed by the state. You know, and what can you do if your individuality is suppressed by the state? You can't do shit. You know, like mm -hmm. it's it, it it's the the enormous amount of pressure that you receive from the state is yeah, it's really something. It really is. It would. And I think when you're facing this external pressure, it sort of puts you into this cube of of your own individual experience, and the only way. And you know that the, the pressure is increasing, and that cube is getting denser and denser, and it wants to explode, and and it can explode on paper, and nice. that's perhaps something that happened here. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that, I think that's one hundred percent right. Um. Oh yeah. So I'm kind of. I was kind of curious. I I wrote down a note here, and <clears throat> mm -hmm. I'm sure you can help me with this. I'm not probably. Like, I'm not particularly uh, well versed in. In like Central European history here, so, um, mm -hmm. so during the writing of this book, it's still Czechoslovakia, right? Like Slovakia and the Czech Republic yes. are one country. Okay, gotcha. And so, when did when when did those countries split? Was that like immediately f following the fall of communism? So, nineteen ninety nine, beginning beginning of November, I think it was like the seventh or fifth or whatever, the Berlin Wall collapses. Um, Shortly after the Berlin Wall collapses, protests um, protests spur across the uh, across the Soviet bloc. So the Berlin Wall is obviously in Berlin. That's in East Germany, communist state, and that was very much emblematic of a change coming. So the seventeenth of November of nineteen eighty nine, there was a huge demonstration both in Prague and in Bratislava, the uh, capitals of you know Czech Republic and Slovakia. Mm -hmm. And these huge protests actually result into communists handing the rule over 
and um, it was that's we call it the Velvet Revolution mm -hmm. because uh, it was a coup d'état essentially, but it was a peaceful coup d'état. So the communists they decided to hand power over to the protesting people, um, and, and nobody really knows why they did so um, because in other states, for, for example, with Romania, uh, Romania had a huge uh, bloody uprising. Um, where when when uh, communism was falling there and and this is an interesting story so the leader of uh romania was called ceausescu and this guy ceausescu he was he, he's said to be the, the the worst of uh communist leaders in eastern europe um, and uh so what these people did to him was they captured him and before they got the camera cameras rolling the media was there as well when they captured him before they could get these cameras rolling. Uh, they shot him to death with many, many bullets. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so they, they hated this guy. And this didn't happen here. Uh, nobody went to jail, essentially, after communism fell. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was it was sort of like a peaceful handing over of power. So that was 1989. Communism collapses. From that period on to 1993, beginning of 1993, uh, Czechoslovakia was a federation. So up to that point, up to 1989, uh, it was it was basically very much centralized political rule from Prague. But after the collapse of uh, communism here, it was uh, it was basically a federation um, with Slovakia having its having being a, basically an independent entity uh, within Czechoslovakia. So it was a federation. Um, that lasted for two years, and um, you know the political turmoil of that time resulted into the splitting of Czechoslovakia. The reason we split uh, was basically it was it was a political stalemate, and um, people say that if there was a referendum, Czechoslovakia wouldn't have split because neither the Czechs nor the Slovaks wanted to split. But uh, the politics of that time <clears throat> just resulted into splitting. So. Uh, we decided to split peacefully, and um, yeah, Czech Republic became its own country on January 1st, 1993, and Slovakia became its own country on January 1st, 1993 as well. So there was a period of basically two years where we uh, were a federation, and um, yeah, and it was, uh, mm -hmm. some people Some people think we should have uh, stayed a federation, but but we didn't, so... Gotcha. Because yeah, I, I know, like, like when I when we went on our, our trip over there and stuff like that, like very similar. Like I know, like the languages are slightly mm -hmm. different um, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Uh, is the Czech Republic in the EU? Yes. Okay, gotcha. I just remember yes. using different money there. So that's, that yeah, they use that's... crowns. Yeah. 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 They okay. don't use the euro. They... Yeah. So, yeah, the, the languages are a bit different. Uh, not too much. But uh, but yeah, like a lot of a lot of our vocabulary is is um, shared in in all of that. So I, I speak Slovak when I'm in Prague, and people understand no problem. And it's sort of a you know yeah. interesting. Like it, like you still use some different words, so it's not quite an accent, but it, like more yes. of a dialect, maybe I suppose. Gotcha. Yes. Yep. Yep. Let's say yeah. Cool. <laughs> gotcha. All right. Yeah. I was just I was just kind of curious on that. Like. You know, so historically speaking, like before communism and stuff like that, 
Um, mm-hmm. Was it kind of was it kind of a combined culture as well, Czech Republic and Slovakia, or historically were they two different regions? Little bit, little bit. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about this, obviously culturally. Um, <clears throat> so before uh, before the okay, so let let's talk 20, uh, 20th century. Um, so with the end of the First World War. Uh, the first Czechoslovak state was created. So Czechoslovakia was created in 1918, and uh, we call it the First Republic. Uh, that lasted until 1939, when uh, you know the war started and uh, Czech Republic was annexed essentially by Germany, and Slovakia became an independent puppet state. Mm-hmm. And that lasted until 45, and in 1945, uh, Czech Republic or the protectorate of uh, of Czechia and Moravia, which it was uh, called back then. Um, uh, yeah, so so the Czech Republic uh, and uh, Slovakia reunited again in 1945, and uh, they were no longer a democracy, but uh, fell under communist rule. So so the first republic was actually democratic, and it was one of the only democracies in Europe at that time. Uh, so, for example, uh, Czechoslovakia had uh, voting rights for women in 1920, uh, much sooner than uh, U- UK, France, Switzerland, um, mm-hmm. Italy. Also, it was one of the first countries to have. Uh, to, it was a very progressive uh, country back then. Definitely. So, so uh, it was also among the richest uh, richest countries in in Europe. Uh, it was basically on par with uh, with Sweden, and in Norway. Um, in terms of GDP per capita, it was richer than the UK per capita, I think. So, um, so yeah, because it was heavily industrialized. Uh, but communism slowed these two countries down. So, <laughs> gotcha, nice. And then, uh, while we're talking about stuff that's not necessarily in the book, I had something maybe <laughs> maybe sort of related to it. So, I found uh, I think it was like a New York Times <laughs> article from 1995. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was an interview mm. with the author. Um, of this mm. and so um he talks about uh so after uh after the fall of communism he founded a uh, a publishing company uh like mm-hmm. arca, arca publishing house i think arca. yeah mm-hmm. and so he's and so he has that and he's clearly still still has a lot of thoughts about politics and in this book in 1995 he's he expresses that he's kind of like worried about slovakia going in an authoritarian direction like apparently mm-hmm. like three TV shows had been banned by the state. Like one that was like a political satire show and stuff like that. And I was kind of curious, like, obviously maybe this is, this is obviously when you were quite young, but have you heard, like when you were growing up, did you ever hear anything sort of like that? Like it during 95 and around that time that mm-hmm. there was like, almost like maybe a bit of a swing back away from liberal liberalism or something. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So, so the nineties were, very much a dark age for oh, Slovakia. Gotcha. It was it was horrible back then, man. Um, it's it's hard to describe to someone who hasn't experienced it. But so so once the old order collapsed, you know, when any type of order collapses, chaos ensues. Yeah. Um, so this is what happened in in Slovakia as well. And you know, it was the nineties were wild because the mafia had a lot of power back then. You know, people who it, 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 to me, it seems like this criminal element was suppressed by the state so successfully <laughs> during communism that it just, you know, came with a fucking vengeance mm-hmm. after, the, after, yep. na- after 1993. 
and uh, you know, cars were blowing up. You know, um, the, the son of one president he got kidnapped My goodness. by his by his political opponent. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, so his political opponent, he had the uh, secret service under his rule, basically, and he ordered them to uh, kidnap his son and they carried him over to Austria and they just dumped him somewhere on, the, on like a gas station or something. You know, he, they found him, you know, he was beat up and he had his hands tied and stuff. Um, yeah. And this was the president's son. You know, this is like if someone, I don't know, um, kidnapped jesus i don't know ivanka trump My or something <laughs> this this shit's happening in slovakia at like the same time bill clinton's getting shit for getting a blowjob in the oval office like <laughs> oh my god <laughs> yeah yeah it was it was a dark time for slovakia so madeline albright who was of czech descent actually um she was the uh i think she was like the like a foreign minister of the U.S. essentially, I think, at, at that time. She had a bunch of different um, functions in the administration, but she was like a high-ranked politician, Madeleine Albright. She wrote a couple books, you probably know her. And she said that Slovakia is uh, the black hole of Europe in the 1990s. It was politically, it was a hard time, but this story has a good ending because in 1998, uh, they there was this political power that managed to uh, to dodge this uh, this authoritarian guy who was getting his grip on onto power. Uh, he was, you know, he was a nationalist. He was something like uh, Viktor Orban in in Hungary. Mm. Maybe you're familiar with him, sort of or not. He was like the Trump of of, uh, of 1990, I think, in Slovakia. <laughs> let's say it was like you know these these authoritarian, um, you know, he had this authoritarian side to him. He didn't give a shit about uh, people. You know, he um, he wanted everybody to be loyal to him, to succumb to his will and all that. So it was very much, very much dangerous at that time. Um, yeah, so so something like that. Like, I think that's about the closest example I could uh, fathom yeah. from the U.S. But yeah, it was it was wild. Um, however, from uh, 1998, um, it was it all turned out good you know we uh, entered nato and then the eu and so it's a success story overall gotcha nice awesome that, that's <laughs> that that's in, that's just interesting that it's like at least compared to like how i think about u.s history like that's very recent uh, like mm -hmm. i have like i have this like it's, oh, yeah. it's probably just because just because i'm relatively young i suppose but i think of yeah the 90s aren't that long ago we're not like that that necessarily different <laughs> Even though yep. we probably are in a lot of ways, but it's it's just really interesting that it's that's that recent for a lot of violence and stuff like that um, in Slovakia. Oh yeah, interesting. Oh yeah, it was it was horrible. Uh, my, my parents don't uh, talk to me about this. I haven't talked to them about this, but I read about this a lot in in books, and it's a it's a it's something that we look back to really culturally, hmm. and we try to figure it out. Like what the hell was happening in the nineties? You know, like. What was that all about? And this was the case for Czech Republic as well. Um, so Slovakia was uh, was a worse example because um, the po the particular politician here was more authoritarian than in the Czech Republic, mm -hmm. and Czech Republic had stronger institutions back then. But uh, yeah, but like cars were blowing up in in Prague as well and, and stuff. So <laughs> gotcha. It was, it was it was a crazy time to be in politics or in public life. 
Yeah, car bombs <laughs> were a big thing back in the nineties. Like, uh, I've heard of it yeah. a lot in relation to uh, like uh, like the IRA in Ireland. The uh, oh yeah, separatists. oh yeah, that that was that was massive. Jesus, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we're past that. Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It <laughs> was a horrible time, man. Yeah. All right, let me see well, here can... if I've got other points I wanted to bring up here about the actual book before we get too far off topic. Let me see yep, here. Definitely. Um, oh yeah, so there's one particular scene that I wrote that I wrote a note about. It was I think I think it's early on in the book, um, and he's uh, he's like in, in his bedroom cuddling up with, with Tanya. And so he, he like, they somehow get on the topic of him, uh, of him running and his trophies and stuff that are hanging mm -hmm. in the room, and he gets mm -hmm. really into it. And you can see, like, it, it, it's a full like, like, um, almost like a like a like a Saint Paul paragraph, right? Like if you read like one of like some of Saint Paul's epistles in the Bible, where it'll be like one sentence that runs for like three pages right it was a lot like that he's getting into it he's like running through he's be like yeah this is what it would be like i'd be running and then i'd be really getting into it and you'd be cheering and then i'd finish and i'd want to die and it would be fantastic and he, he kind of finishes and he realizes he got he got off track and tanya's just like yep and he's like yeah i'll throw my trophies out tomorrow and i'm like that's so sad like just like he's like man i love this so much and then he's like well yeah, I can't go to university. I'm not going to be competing at any sort of level now. So I better. Yeah. It's better that I just that I just throw those things away. And I'm like, wow, that's. It it, it was a really powerful scene. <laughs> yeah, I remember that scene too, and um, so I've read I've read one other book that it's basically a book that's a book of like it's an interview with with the author. Uh, it mm. came out in 2019. And um, he remembers a lot of these times and he remembers the time he wrote this book. Uh, and he says that, you know, so, so back then I was very boastful and to, to a very, to, to a weird degree to which I am ashamed of. You know? Yeah. <laughs> he said that he, he, he boasted more than he really needed to. Um, he, because he wanted to show that he's a good runner. You know, he wanted to, to express that, um, and so, so this was his channel, but he said that, you know, I didn't have to do that. You know, it's kind of boastful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got it. I got it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Like, particularly if you're like super, like one of the best in your country at this yeah. and then you just can't do it yeah. anymore, even though you're still yeah. the best. Like I'd, I'd be really pissed off too. I'd like every chance was... I'd get, I'd be like sprinting past people being like, this is what you're missing out on, bitch. <laughs> like... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was, he was actually uh, his, tr uh, his trainers actually told him that uh, they want to nominate him for the Olympics. Mm -hmm. But since he was the son of a dissident, Not you know, the, the communist regime couldn't have it. No, nope. mm -hmm. no. Nope. Gosh, that's just, that's just so shitty. Like, personally, like, I guess yeah. maybe with the Olympics, you can make a point that it that should be different. But I've always been under the impression, like, I don't give a shit what these, what, <laughs> like, the athlete is like, right? Like... You know, even like, so like the O.J. Simpson trial, right? Guy clearly murders his wife, gets away with it, obviously. But it's yeah. like, yeah, but he, he was still really good at football. Like, we can still say that, right, guys? And like, <laughs> and like all, all, all this stuff, like athletes not getting vaccinated and stuff like this. And it ends up being such an uproar nowadays. It's like, guys, I, oh, I yeah. watched this person bounce a ball and make shots and he's really good at it. Like, why do I care? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's just so nonsensical yeah. to me but 
Yeah, I mean, I could, I suppose I could maybe see it for the Olympics. Like, you're representing your country, I guess. But I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they just couldn't have it, you know, because his his father, actually, the story about his father is very interesting, too. He was like a, he was a very devout communist back in the 50s. And he was one of the leading communists in the country, actually. However, after, in the 60s, basically, after some time, he realized that, uh-oh, this is not what we wanted to build, you know? Back then, they wanted justice for everybody. They wanted social justice uh, for people and this sort of, um, and they wanted to, they wanted a different system from what democracy was because they blamed democracy for a second world war, which is which is uh, a bad sort of thinking, I think. But um, they, they blamed democracy for the second world war and they wanted something else. They wanted some change uh, and a change is what they got. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he realized he was wrong and he tried to, you know, he tried to criticize the party and the party imprisoned him. So, <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Not, not good. Yeah, I think that, I think that's, that that's a common narrative for a lot of people who are like political dissidents in in any sort of fashion, right? So if you're yeah, like say you're you know in America during any of these revolutions, I feel like when you're revolutionary, you can be really you can be really really carefree with your rhetoric and you're making all these. But as soon as it comes to like actually setting up some sort of system, then you're getting all these players coming in wanting a wanting a piece of the pie or to get special treatment, and you realize mm -hmm. that setting this up is extremely difficult compared to how easy it is to make uh to make kind of broad rhetoric and i think i think that's that's pretty common for no matter what systems in there it gets captured by certain bad actors um mm -hmm. things like that yeah, so precisely <coughs> precisely and that's what democracy prevents and uh, yeah because like no matter how well you mean it always turns to shit if if it's an authoritarian state you know because the the bad people get on top that's it's just what happens. But, you know, a, a thought just popped into my mind right now. You know what I think really makes him an exceptional author? I think that really exceptional authors are sort of ahead of the curve every time, a little bit, mm. somehow. You know, it's not really... And it's the 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 nature of being ahead uh, like like they are is not exactly factual. It's sort of on an emotional level, it's not based on data. It's not based on some, you know, predictive algorithm that they've yep. created. It's based on a feeling and, and really great authors have this sort of feeling. There was George Orwell with, you know, when he wrote 1984, for example. When he wrote his books, um, that was, who else? Uh, Tony Judd, for example, a great intellectual as well. So, yeah, I think like great writers are always ahead of the curve and they, they think differently. They just think in this more authentic sense, this more sensitive way. And, and that's what allows them to be ahead of the curve. And we say, we have a saying in Slovakia, you, you have your finger on the, uh, what do you call on this? The on the, on the pulse. Yeah. You have the, you have your finger on the pulse of, of that particular era. Mm -hmm. So. I think that's what that's what he he had back back then and after the collapse of uh, communism as well as a public intellectual. So I think I think this is something that makes him an exceptional writer. It's it's a shame he has he doesn't have uh, more books in English. I, I don't think he does at least. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, definitely. Anyways. All right, let me see. I think that's all the points I have written down. Let me see. Did I get through all the article stuff that I had? Um, oh, yeah. So um, so the foreword in this book is by Vaclav Havel. Was he the... The English... Yeah, was he the first president of Slovakia, or am I thinking wrong? Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, he was the first president. He's a huge public intellectual as well. He... Uh, he has a, like a prestigious prize named after him that's gotcha. given I thought I'd heard the name before for sure. Like I, I definitely know that I've heard mm. Vaclav Havel, but I, I couldn't remember if it was like the name of a town in Star Wars or something. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that forward isn't in the in the book that I have. It's only in the English uh, version. Oh, of gotcha. It. Because the publisher thought uh, I've read about it in in this other book. The the publisher thought that it's going to sell if uh, Václav Havel uh, writes the forward. Mm-hmm. And it, I guess it did. Um, so yeah, it, he was. He died in like 20, 2011, was it or twenty twelve, something like that. Yeah, gotcha. it was. It, the Czechs mourn him very much this day. I'd imagine for sure. Yeah. All right, gotcha. Well, any other uh, any other points you've got here? Otherwise, I think we got through all mine. Yeah, we got through all mine as well. Like the the real important point that this book sort of managed to nail down with me was the paradoxical simplicity of his life back then, you know, like he was, he was going about his business. And like you mentioned, he wasn't really putting a lot of attention uh, to criticizing the communist regime. But if you, if you paid close attention, you noticed that, in some parts of the book, he actually goes into this rage and he expresses his rage towards communist the, the, the regime with swear words, which he doesn't use in other instances. If you if you pay close attention, he only uses swear words in in relation to the regime. He also says he always says, you know, this fucking regime won't allow me this mm. or that. And that's the that's about the only time he uses swear words of of this magnitude, let's say. Mm. And uh, but it's I think it's it's a result of this exhaustion from 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 the regime as well. It's like you you, you almost give up on on criticizing it because you it, it doesn't make any it, it's it's not worth it to criticize it if it's not going to collapse. You know this is the reality I, I live in. You just you know go on with get on with your life and you're just like fuck it and you express your occasional dissatisfaction with it by swearing at it and waving your fist at the uh, at the rule but that's all you can do and you just sort of <sighs> sigh and you go on with your life and you realize that it doesn't make that it, it it's not worth it to pay more attention to it than that mm-hmm. nice yeah I, I i agree 100% yeah with the it's just like a lot of way of saying it like for instance a lot of a lot of people online in part in particular they like talk about like the u.s system for example right that's gonna be what i'm gonna get most to but when there's an exasperation with it there's this like escalatory heavy-handed rhetoric of listen and i don't don't, like it's completely different obviously right because we're because it's a completely different regime but 
it's it's very hot headed rhetoric that pe- that people are bringing in back and forth, and they're always um, out to kind of exaggerate the system because they say, hey, if I use more, if I use heavier and heavier and more inflammatory language to describe this, maybe some people will pay attention. And I don't think that's a very good way of thinking about it. And this book kind of um, kind of places that for me, right? Because it's you can tell there's no there's not really much exaggeration and stuff and stuff like that when he talks about it um but there, there's still some very some very pointed critiques and and stuff like that in here and i think that lack of exaggeration just saying how it is um i think it kind of is more likely to have an impact if that makes sense um than mm-hmm. escalating and using more and more inflammatory mm-hmm. rhetoric because that can give give people the idea of hey well i mean if you're just going to be straight up lying and using this sort of language now I don't think if we make anything better, you're gonna stop. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I think, I think, I think this book kind of kind of locks that in for me, and it's kind of along those same lines. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so what's what's one thing that you really take away from this book apart from this? What's like the number one thing that you're going to remember after reading this? I think the number one thing that I'm gonna take that I kind of take away from this book is. I don't know. It's, it's almost a little hopeful um, because with a lot of like the media that I consume and things like that that end up being around current events or breaking news or, you know, like a news podcast and things like that that I tend to listen to, um, I think it's very easy to get wrapped up in it and get maybe a little bit depressed on, oh, things aren't, aren't moving in politics in the right way, right? Things aren't moving in culture the right way or ways that I would like them to. And... I think this book kind of gives me a little bit more peace on that in a couple of ways. One, you can live under a terrible regime and you're still live you can still live a simple life and have and mm-hmm. have some great some uh, some you know great experiences um, and things like that. Um, and life continues, right? You know, in a hit like U.S. big history with slavery and overall, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean that for every slave and every point in history, like their lives were just constantly about this oppression. You know, maybe that wasn't their focus. They went, they went home, had, you know, dinner with their family, brought up children, same thing, right? And I think kind of bringing in focus on a more simple section of my life and kind of like, this isn't going to change no matter what the what happens with current events and culture and things like that. Um, this is kind of be going to be like a place of refuge almost. Um, that that mm-hmm. brings me a whole lot of peace, and that and kind of looking at things in the long term, right? Because this is a book written forty years ago, and things were pretty bad, but things aren't as bad now. Um, and so I think taking the long view and stuff like that, it kind of brings me a whole lot of peace, and doesn't doesn't let me get wrapped up too much in current rhetoric and arguments and stuff like that. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. <laughs> For sure. All right. Um, See, oh, let's see. I thought I had something percolating in my brain. Let me see if I can pull it out before. Uh, oh yeah, the other, the other, the other thing. Um, I think after reading this, I, I like. I think I'm just gonna write some more stream of consciousness stuff. I think it's interesting. Like if yeah, mm-hmm. you can kind of block yourself off and do it. Like the hard part for me, right? Is nowadays you write on a computer. I purposely got mm-hmm. this really crappy laptop from 2009 
And so, like, it can barely process anything, right? And so I open it, and uh, you can just use the word processor. And so I got, I got it. And so I love writing on that thing because it's, it's very easy to disconnect myself and be like, okay, I'm just going to be here, and I'm going to write my thoughts. At this it's, it's your typewriter, essentially. Exactly. It, you know, it's you're your not, digital typewriter. Exactly. You're not going to be as, as – uh, it's not as easy access to be like, I don't know, what have other people said on this subject? It's like – Brian, <laughs> who gives a shit? All right, I want to know what I think about this. I don't want to. Mm -hmm. I don't want to pull points from other people and just parrot them and sh you know shit them out on a page. Uh, so I think, I think, uh, I think that that's another thing that I'm going to start trying to do more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, so so what, what what do you write your short stories on? Yeah, usually usually they're they're kind of um they they're usually fiction. Right now I'm trying to do um. Mm -hmm. It's the it's a, it's a short collection of uh, stories where the characters all know they're in a story, um, kind of meta like that. And so I'm, mm -hmm. I think I've got three of them written so far. Uh, one of them I've still got to do some proofwriting on, but I think I want to get like five stories so I can have a collection. Because if you you put out one short story, it would be very mm -hmm. hard to say publish. But a collection of short stories, mm -hmm. you know, where it get it can get to maybe the size of a novella or something like that, okay, could be pretty good. But they're all they're all fiction. They usually have some sort of lesson in them but it's kind of framed in a in an interesting meta way like that i just i don't know why i really i really like writing about that concept of like knowing that you're in a story and maybe you don't have control but there's still mm -hmm. a story here and it maybe it relates to the outside world in some way it's it's an it's just an interesting concept for me but um but yeah so that's where do you set it oh where, where do, do i you set, set it, it? Set, yep. yeah so usually i'm kind <laughs> of the setting for me typically ends up being like a very uh, like parody version of the generic setting for a certain genre, right? So I have one that's like a pulp noir detective, right? So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, there she was, the femme fatale, started in, into my office, her legs were so long, you know, kind of kind of that era of like a dark detective novel. And so the world for th for that, the setting is a completely over the top generic parody version <laughs> of that world. I have one that takes place in a high fantasy world. And so everything that happens is what happens in generic fantasy novels um, and stuff like hmm. that. At least for, at least for two of them, that's kind of wh where it comes from. Um, so there, yeah, so there, there's a little bit of, uh, of like a parody element to them as well, where it's like, yeah, this happens in every single detective novel. Right. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I'd like to read them one day if you if you manage to send them to me maybe or, or yeah. something if you if you'd like. Yeah, yeah, I'll send over the ones that I have. I'm, I've been sending them around uh, to different people for proofreading, so that would definitely be good. I'll I'll mm -hmm. send you some links after this and uh, and get that in there. Um, other than that, oh, I suppose we can probably uh, wrap the podcast here. So, um, real quick, I'll remember to put down links in the description. Hopefully, if I don't, uh, email me and give me crap for it. But I'll put down some links in the description uh, for the book we're reading, um, maybe like the author's wiki page or something like that, um, and just all the other generic stuff. So um, that's it. Thanks for coming on again, Tim. And uh, I'll quit the recording here. <laughs> Tim has brought to my attention that we probably should uh, say whether or not we recommend this book. Uh, you know, maybe not give it a review score. You know, I'm going to give one of those dumb review scores that always happens on review videos. So right, uh, I would definitely recommend this book for anybody, particularly if you're interested in short stories or um, just beautiful, beautifully written prose, right? Um, 
you know, might not be for you. It's autobiographical, so if you're interested in nonfiction, it's probably up there too. But I would give this uh, this book, I'd say, I'm going to give it four and a half out of five smashed toads. Uh, that's what I'm going to give it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you read the book, you'll probably figure figure out what that one means. But would you like to give uh, give your recommendations and thoughts, Tim? <laughs> that's a beautiful way to put this. <laughs> Yeah, I, I remember that image very vividly. Yeah. <laughs> Smash toads there. there. It, was, it was wonderful, yeah. He described them as, as uh, popping balloons. So, yeah. Anyways, uh, the, I would definitely recommend this book. He is this, this author, Martin Milan Šimečka. He is one of my favorite public intellectuals in, in the Slovak public life right now. And I really do admire his courage to put his thoughts down on paper like he did. And like he does to this day, um, he has a couple more books, um, but none of those are in English to my knowledge. He has uh, he has a sequel to uh, the Year of the Frog, but it's called Interest, and but it's only in Slovak. Perhaps someone should get on that and translate it yeah. uh, to English. Yeah, come on. No worries, I'll get so, on. It. I'm gonna learn Slovak. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I would definitely recommend it to anybody who would like to learn more about the sort of mindset that people lived in, in communist times, people who opposed the regime. And, uh, this, this could be also interesting to people who enjoy reading books about introspection or, or about the, or, or for people who have a rich inner world and like to, and like to understand other people who have a rich inner world as well. And uh, I think there's a lot of relatable things uh, like for, for these types of uh, people in the book. So definitely um, recommend, and I would give this, I would give this a 4.5 smash totes out of five. Let's, let's go with the same uh, as you did, Brian. Great minds think alike. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome. Go out and buy the book. Oh.